Chapter 4 In a surprisingly soulless office at the end of a labyrinthine arrangement of corridors, the heads of two different departments were lamenting the distinct lack of any significant boating experience in their combined repertoire. They'd been forced to set sail with no real maps and no additional crew, just a reluctant captain who'd been given no choice in his assignment by his own version of the Admiralty, and one measly first officer, whom he'd had to effectively press-gang in order to get him to even report to the gangplank of their precariously balanced vessel in the first place. They were having to negotiate some distinctly choppy waters, caused by the wake of the normally dependable Mr Simon Sudbury's decision that day to mysteriously cancel two meetings, leave his mobile behind, take himself off across country for a number of hours, and then return to his desk just before five, as though nothing untoward had even happened. Do you know where Sudbury spent his afternoon? I haven't the foggiest. Sorry. Mental note to self. Next time, press gang an additional person to serve as bosun, with a view to keeping this mouthy landlubber in check. Judging by the utter disinterest writ large on the face of his colleague from an equally soulless office at the end of its own set of labyrinthine corridors, two floors down from where they were presently clinging onto the rigging, mutiny in the very near future was a distinct possibility. He doubtless thought such an attitude would lead to the master of this rickety vessel exercising the absolute powers he possessed and chucking this fellow over the side. Well, if he did think that, he was very wrong indeed. Nobody was abandoning this sinking ship. Your man there could just grab hold of the nearest bucket and start bailing, just as he himself was attempting to do. Well, you certainly should know where he was. You are responsible for his entire department. Oh, a yawn now. He'd have this scurvy knave flogged. Or, at the very least, he'd make out a strong report on the whole matter for the attention of their superiors. Calm down. It's a weekday. I'll take a wild stab in the dark and say he must have been on prison business somewhere. Unless he's found a replacement already that I'm not quite in the loop about yet. In which case, it doesn't particularly matter anymore, does it? Listen, you. While he remains as governor there, everything he does matters. And in case you are not aware, as far as we are concerned, he will be remaining as governor there for as long as it suits us to have him there. So having him wander off into the ether without a clue as to where he buggered off to is not something I am likely to be very relaxed about. So there. Just a minute now. My department has been looking to help him find a replacement as soon as possible. The bloke's a potential loose cannon. A cannon would have been a damn good thing to have aboard this vessel. For kissing the gunner's daughter purposes for me hearty over there, if nothing else. Who gave you those orders? Which department? I'm not telling you. My department has been tasked with keeping him in his current position. And, shipmate, those orders still stood as of five minutes before I had to trick you into coming along here. So I will have an answer from you, damn it. My department does not answer to yours. I am superior to you on the civil service pay scale. You will answer me. They faced each other intensely across the ship's wheel, upon which both had laid a possessive hand, the combined influence of which had resulted in a vessel which was, effectively, steering itself. Neither man was keen to relinquish his half of the helm and risk a change of course to a destination he was completely unsure about. Was that a peaceful and beautiful lagoon it was aiming for? Or were those rocks 
Look here, whether or not he has any sort of future in the prison environment is not the issue, isn't it? Well, of course it was, but with a boatload of issues jumping aboard and attacking them from all directions, only one of them could have an audience with the captain at any one time. If he picked the right one out of the many upon which to focus, he could run the rest through with his cutlass, along with this gobby little swine. Purely in a metaphorical sense, naturally. Or, if he felt it particularly necessary to actually see such a thing through, there were people in other departments he could have a word with who would be happy to perform a far more damaging manoeuvre upon him. His body would then be fed to the sharks, leaving no evidence behind. What could be better? He lowered his voice. It lent an air of urgency and undeniable importance to what he said next. We don't know where he was. Do you know what that means? He'd already decided that if the fellow said anything along the lines of it means we don't know where he was, he was going to land one right on him. Fortunately for them both, what came back was something a little more sensible. I'd say it means someone somewhere must know where he went. And so all we have to do is find out who that someone is and where that somewhere might be. Somehow. Brilliant. You're right. I suggest we start with CCTV. The cunning fellow was smart enough to not take his mobile with him. But the CCTV and traffic cameras should be able to get us underway while we wait for the satellite imagery to arrive. All of which was equivalent to using a distress flare to alert the Coast Guard. Then, once we've narrowed the area of interest down, we can move in. Right? What, was he auditioning for the role of the ship's figurehead, this fellow? He could at least nod or something, the insubordinate oaf. Ah, even better. That's right, yes. Step away from the helm. Nice and slowly. Wonderful. The good ship Sudbury would soon be overhauled, and the crew reappraised of their orders. Or, in the unlikely event that could not quite be achieved, the entire thing could be scuttled. Just like that. In the grand scheme of things, it wouldn't really matter which of the two should come to pass. Oh, my life. Why did an evening spent in the company of Eleanor and a bottle of milk stout each always have to degenerate into something from the confessional? My husband was very virile indeed, actually. Ros began to feel slightly queasy. It wasn't even seven o'clock yet. Well, of course it wasn't. If it had been, she wouldn't have been sitting there listening to Eleanor's ravings. That was for damn sure. Usually in these tales, her old man was remembered, presumably fondly, as having been virile, which was bad enough and more than sufficient to put any sensible woman off her tea. But this... Very virile business was a very, very unpleasant little development. Do you think we might change the subject, Eleanor? Please. Eleanor blinked back at her from behind the sort of glasses which make someone of her sort of build look like a sweet, innocent old dear, as opposed to a sexual deviant with a phenomenal memory. Not that her husband had been gone all that long, but for heaven's sake, have a look at the woman. She appeared to be so many stops past octogenarian that Ros wouldn't even have felt comfortable taking a guess at the appropriate Greek nomenclature. Pardon, Ros, dear. 
Ros smiled back at her from behind the sort of face which said she wasn't falling for a bit of it. Nice try, love. You and I both know that, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, you can hear very nicely indeed these days. Thank you very much. Yes, one to Ros, who resolved to keep a close eye on those glasses as well. They popped in and out of existence like the Higgs boson, they did. Almost always to find their way back, quietly like, as if they'd never even been away, on top of the silly coot's head. She didn't even need them, the crafty old cow. She used them as a delaying tactic, to buy herself a bit of thinking time when anybody called her out on her behaviour. As a case in point, did you get up to much today then, Eleanor, while I was at work? Off she went, fiddling with her glasses. She might as well just have come right out and admitted it. She'd been sat there all day watching TV and quaffing something at least vaguely alcoholic. Wait then. Very virile. It must have been at least 40% proof. Oh, that's right. You work for the council, don't you? Ros gritted her teeth, her reply the sort of thing Ray Allen and Lord Charles would have been proud of. She had no ventriloquist doll to speak for her, but her fist was on the cusp of being auditioned to serve as a suitable understudy, unless or until one should become available. Not exactly, dear, no. We talked about all that before, remember? If working for the council is not a contradiction in terms. Oh, that was just lovely, that. Extend the hand of welcome to a doddery old biddy who would otherwise have been left on her own, and she goes and cracks a so-called funny like that. It probably had actually been funny when she'd first said it. When would that have been now, roughly? How many years ago? It was difficult to keep tabs on that sort of thing these days. Hang on a minute. Eleanor, when did we first meet? Was it when we discovered a shared interest in Barney Adams' arse, or was it while we were carrying the collecting tins for his future wife? It was one of those, yes, definitely. That's terrific. Thanks, Eleanor. What a fun little group that had been. Just the three of them. Before Barney's singing career had really taken off and they'd had to ditch him, as had been standard operating procedure. It was reasonable for them to have expected, of course, that having something of a spy in their midst in those days would have helped them fend off the attentions of persons with a particularly nefarious interest in other features Barney Adams had possessed, whose attentions and intentions had ultimately accelerated that estrangement. Which just went to show how fundamentally useless Anthea's sister had been when push had come to shove. Sandra. How did she even get involved with them in the first place? This was obviously going to be a complete waste of everybody's time, but... And Sandra? Did we meet her through Anthea, or was she an appreciator of Barney Adams' arse before then? It had definitely been before Anthea got her hands on it, but that was all Ros could really be certain of. Was Eleanor mulling that one over, or had she fallen asleep right there with her glasses in mid-fiddle? It was impossible to tell, really. Well, of course... Ros did have one very important bit of news from her day which would answer that question straight away. Assuming there was some sort of brain activity still going on over there, other than any reminiscences of her husband Stanley's sexual performance, and we could do without any more of those, thank you very much, that would mean the two inaugural members of Hal's Angels would be nicely placed to receive it. In short, 
And in the interest of future posterity, let the records of the first, well, it might as well be now, official meeting since the day Humphrey went to prison show. Humphrey's back, you know. So she had been mulling over her answer to the previous question. Deaf? Yeah, right. What, you mean he's back? No, of course he wasn't back. Where had she got a daft idea like that from? He was most definitely back in the land of the living, though. In a manner of speaking, of course. Yes, my work took me to Brentwood High Street today. Don't you work for the council? Bite your tongue, Ros. Bite your tongue. If that is not a contradiction in terms... Cheek on that scale may just have brought that long-awaited first meeting to a screeching halt. Trust Eleanor, yet again, to take the shine off the day's events like that. It's nearly seven o'clock then. Yes, Eleanor, nearly seven o'clock. Almost time for Lovewell QC. Was knew that. Of course she knew that. I wonder who his guests are tonight. Ross could have told her, but she made the executive decision not to. Pretty much as she'd done every night, since that kind of information may have been relevant. Well, Eleanor thought her old friend worked for the council. Who was Ross to disabuse her of that theory? It was a lean time in Scarborough, at least as far as guests to Splink were concerned. Anthea herself, though, was not terribly concerned. As the very poster child of introverted behaviour, were it even likely for one moment she would ever knowingly allow any photographs of herself to be taken at all, she relished opportunities like these. Chances to air the mattresses and to invoke the wizardry of whatever stain devil was most appropriate for whatever task her guests had summoned it for from her cleaning cupboard. She liked to wander around her empty, four-storey, pale-bricked Victorian semi in the South Cliff area of Scarborough, just off the Esplanade, and take in just how far she'd come. Barney often accompanied her, although she could have told him they'd come three times the distance of the moon and back and he would have believed her. Which was not so much the result of any kind of blind devotion on his part, or even a complete disinterest in arguing with her. It was simply his profound lack of situational awareness. He seldom knew whether he was coming or going. Well, no. Thankfully, he was at least 50% there on that score. And he was, without question, a simply amazing dad. For one thing, he had an incredible talent for getting their little boy to bed, nice and early of an evening. 6.45, regular as clockwork, down he went. Showing judgment well beyond his years, in thereby avoiding any possibility whatsoever of accidentally running into Lovewell QC of a weeknight. Thanks to that 15 minutes of frenetic fornication on the open deck of that cruise, there was always the tiniest chance Anthea's little boy might just be this ubiquitous show business figure's grandson, but only if she entertained the thought, which she very seldom permitted herself to do. Anthea settled down in her basement living room, with its subterranean view of the passing populace, and switched on her TV set. Then she remembered the very ethos of her establishment, whether it currently had guests in it or not, and rushed across the room to pull the curtains. She saw Barney's reflection in the window as she did so. 
This was something of an old routine, really, and she definitely had the advantage over her husband, having at least a rudimentary understanding of the laws of incidence and reflection. Never mind. She watched him sneak up behind her, but then closed her eyes in anticipation of his strong and protective arms enveloping her. He held her so tightly, preventing any stupidly negative feelings from getting anywhere near as far as her voice box. That was well worth playing dumb for. It was letting the modern female side down, obviously. Women weren't meant to encourage that sort of behaviour in their men these days. They were supposed to view each other as equals in absolutely every respect. Had she been obliged to explain her old-fashioned attitude, her chief witness would have been just that. It was old-fashioned. As such, it did not look out of place at all in an establishment like hers. In which case, why was she even feeling guilty? She had a husband 15 years her junior, making her feel like a million and one dollars plus copious amounts of interest to attend to first. God, he was a tremendously passionate kisser. And the state of her. I love you, Anthea. Yes, she genuinely believed he probably did. That was progress indeed. What did anything else even matter then? She wasn't the sort of person who found it easy to return words of that sort to their sender, but she was pretty confident Barney knew how she felt about him. She was generally not shy about expressing her feelings through actions. It was just the words which sometimes caused her great difficulties. Did he go down all right? Oh yeah, no problem at all. You're a brilliant dad, you know that? He beamed at her, just like always. Maybe she was a bit handy when it came to choosing the right words. I told him a story all about this really lucky man who marries this beautiful princess. Oh dear. This was usually where things started heading downhill fast. I'd sooner you told him the one about the incredibly lucky woman who married this gorgeous prince. With a fantastic ass. No. It was a story for a four-year-old child, not something that might have been dashed off by Jackie Collins. But that's not how the world is these days, Anthea. Probably not, no. Although, in her opinion, which, when all was said and done, was the only opinion she was ever really interested in, the world, these days, had gone stark raving bonkers. He needs to learn his place, right from the off. Things were now hurtling downhill faster than Alberto Tomba. What place is that then? He's got to learn that he's not as important as any lady he's lucky enough to get. His job will be to make her shine. Like what I do for you. I hope, anyway. That was nonsense. And it definitely wasn't any kind of equality. No, no, Barney. I want him to learn to be the sort of strong, dependable... Brave and honourable man any lady would consider herself lucky to have looking after her. Like you. That's what you do for me. He opened his mouth and then quickly closed it again. He'd evidently planned to argue the point with her and had then thought much better of it. Well, I wouldn't dream of arguing with you. See? Wait a minute, though. She wanted him to argue with her. Why wouldn't you dream of arguing with me? Because that's not my place. I told you, I'm here to make you feel good. I hope. 
But you wanted to argue with me. Well, yes, I often want to argue with you, but that might upset you, so I don't. But what about how you feel, Barney? He sat down and stared off into space. There was clearly an awful lot of thought going on inside his head. I'm a bloke. How I feel doesn't really matter, does it? It matters to me. Well, as it happens, I don't really know how I feel. Except that you make me happy. So I've got to keep you happy. That's it, really. Quite simple. It did sound simple. It sounded like the sort of thing that, if pared down into something significantly snappier, could have been on T-shirts, Valentine's Day cards, the lot. Except that things weren't really that simple, were they? Nobody can be happy all the time, Barney. Life just isn't like that. He looked utterly crestfallen. I don't make you happy. Oh, Lord. You do. Of course you do. But supposing I wasn't happy for any reason, it would probably have nothing at all to do with you. At least it wouldn't now she completed training him in the art of putting the loo seat down after every visit. Humphrey made you happier, I suppose. What am I saying? Of course he did. Oh, Christ. Humphrey? Most of the time I was thoroughly miserable when I was with him. Apart from those 15 minutes, but that was hardly the sort of thing to bring up at the moment. He made me happy. He was the best. Not in any event she'd ever seen him performing and he wasn't. Well, apart from those 15 minutes. She hadn't exactly seen him then, though, to be fair. Oh, good grief! The point is, Barney, any moaning I did while I was with Humphrey was entirely down to me. With a certain amount of help from him, though, during those 15 minutes. It was hot down in that basement. Wasn't it hot down in that basement? My happiness is down to me. Yes, you're wonderful, and I... I love you, Barney, I really do. But if you want to argue with me, go ahead. That was stupid timing there, Anthea. If he argued now, you'd have him for taking the depth of your feelings for him for granted. And if he didn't argue, you'd get him for not doing as he was told. The poor little git couldn't win. He was trying to figure it all out, bless him. There was no right answer, though, so he hadn't a cat's chance in hell. Okie doke. Time to distract him completely, then. We could have an early night, Barney. You'd like that, wouldn't you? Oh, for heaven's sake, don't lead the witness like that. He's supposed to be making his own decisions and arguing with you without fear of reproach. Or of finding himself banished to another room for the night. Well, do you think we could watch Love World QC first? That crap! I know you don't really like him, which is why I don't normally watch him, but it's the nearest thing we've got to seeing Humphrey, really, isn't it? That was true. She was still thinking about those 15 minutes with Humphrey, though which might make for a very uncomfortable half-hour indeed. But considering the level of betrayal she participated in, that was exactly the sort of punishment she deserved. All right then, darling. That's a great idea. Barney looked so gorgeous when he smiled.
Five minutes, Michael. The young TV runner who delivered that message, together with an accompanying two brisk raps on the door to Lovewell QC's dressing room, had already turned to make his way back to the studio floor when he heard that same door opening behind him. The man behind the door had one eyebrow raised in a quizzical, yet remarkably intimidating manner. It was only then the runner realised that, far from standing on ceremony, he'd just pulled up a nice comfy chair and flopped himself right down on it. Fancy calling him Michael. He was well aware of the man's brilliance, and even more aware that a lack of any appreciable manners would fail to convey the deep respect he had for Mr Lovewell QC. On the contrary, it would more than likely completely piss him off. I'm sorry, Mr Lovewell. Five minutes, please, Mr Lovewell. Sir. He'd probably be fired now. His very first day on the job, too. Unless one of the people who helped him get this television gig could be persuaded to have a word with Mr Lovewell QC and tell him how very sorry he was. This was all taking valuable time. He'd be in trouble with his director now on top of everybody else. Thank you. Was that it? He wasn't going to get fired? No. Lovewell QC was smiling and looked cool, calm and collected just like he did on the box. Are the studio audience ready for me? Yes, indeed, sir, yes. He's a good warm-up man, that one. I like his stuff. No doubt that was because, when Mr Lovewell had gone to have his own little warm-up chat with his audience before getting his makeup on, he'd found his warm-up man giving them a quick summary of some of his most noteworthy legal successes. He possibly wouldn't have been quite so impressed with the fart and bum gags which were unleashed as soon as he was back in that dressing room applying his foundation. Oh yes, that reminds me. The guest list. Guest list, sir? We're cutting it very fine here. I would like to see it. See it? That's right. You would like to see the guest list? That's right, yes. The list of guests on my show this evening. If you don't mind. The young man had received strict instructions from that evening's director to be vague in any or all inquiries appertaining to those sorts of fine details. Mr Lovewell wouldn't have time to pursue this line of questioning in any case. His public were out there, waiting for him. Well, as you say, it's your show, isn't it? Who cares who the guests are? I care! I'm the one who's supposed to be interviewing them. He made it sound as though he was Brentwood's answer to Michael Parkinson. Which, of course, he was, except that Parky had never spread himself quite as thinly as this great barrister. Due to the pressures on his time, every question he asked anyone who came on his show was written for him by someone else. His jolly little pieces to camera partly inspired by the fact that was also the location of the autocue. He was immensely popular throughout the country, and someone the public felt they could really trust. But the fact remained... Anyone who could read to a reasonable standard could probably have stood out there every weekday evening at seven and done as good a job as he did. If not better. Three minutes now, sir. Please. Never mind that. If it's my show, then they won't start without me, will they? His visitor was pretty sure that wasn't how live television worked. The immediate sacking of a brand new runner or two would likely figure into things, though. Let me talk to the director, please. 
No, you can't. Oh, no. The eyebrow again. What I mean is, Mr Lovewell, sir, there simply isn't time for that now. We go to air in two and a half minutes. Nonsense. You can get him on your walkie-talkie thingy. That'll do for starters. That eyebrow was ridiculously intimidating. Here you are then, sir. It's two minutes now, by the way. Thank you. Don't worry. I'll make sure nobody blames you. Thank you, sir. That's very good of you. You're a gentleman. He really meant that. Hello? Who's that? The director. Who's that? This is Lovewell QC. Yes, that's right. I am the director of Lovewell QC. Now, would you kindly bugger off? I've got a show starting in one minute. Hearing how little time they had would have sent that runner into something approaching full-blown abject panic had Mr Lovewell not been so thoughtful. No, listen very carefully to me, please. I am Lovewell QC, and I wish to know the identities of the guests appearing on my show this evening. And until I do, you don't have a show starting at all. There was silence at the other end. His assistant spotted an opportunity to give a little something back to the great man. Sorry, sir. While we're waiting, do you think I can have your autograph, please? He only had his clipboard and the piece of paper on the front of it, which was supposed to have contained a list of that evening's guests. But being pretty much a blank piece of paper, it would serve very nicely indeed. Mr Lovewell QC produced a beautifully elegant pen from the inside pocket of his pinstripes. This isn't going to end up on eBay, is it? Well, five minutes ago it probably would have done, but not now. Absolutely not, sir, no. Good lad. Now then, who am I signing this to? My dad. That is to say, Chief Superintendent Thomas Baker. He took his time signing it, despite the mayhem he was presently presiding over. What a class act. Michael? Listen, we've brought ourselves another minute and a half. Where are you? I'm in my dressing room waiting for my guest list, and until I get it, I'm not moving. More silence. So, your father's a chief superintendent? Yes, indeed, sir. New Scotland Yard. He's a long-time admirer of yours. We'll have to see if we can sort him out a front row seat. Always assuming that this rubbish is still in production after this evening, of course. He laughed as though he really didn't care one way or the other. It's not a bad theme tune, really, is it? Eleanor could hear that. Turn it up a bit, will you, dear? Pardon, Ros, dear? No, she couldn't hear that. What a relief. She must have been passing comment based on her memories of how the tune went, that was all. Not that her memory was all that crash out either. In that case, who knew what the silly old fool was on about? Although it did appear as though someone somewhere, who was a bit more proactive in getting their volume sorted than they'd been, liked the theme tune rather a lot. Either that, or they had a particular fondness for the little animation which went along with it, involving a cartoon Lovewell QC leaving a cartoon court, spinning around like a cartoon Wonder Woman, ditching his cartoon wig and silks for some cartoon pinstripes, and then miraculously turning up at a cartoon studio. At which point in the proceedings the real Lovewell QC was supposed to be revealed, being applauded by a real audience eager to see some real guests. 
Things did not seem to be going to plan this evening on that score. Is that all that happens in this show, Barney? Just a weird little cartoon playing over and over again, with a different applause track each time. Starting off with the frenetic pace of the wildly enthusiastic, and now verging on the slow hand clap of impatience. I don't know, darling. I haven't watched it before, have I? That had been phrased very strangely indeed. Which meant he obviously had watched it before. And why shouldn't he have done in fairness? Why lie about it to her, though? Yes, hello? Oh, God almighty, no. Not bloody Lovewell again. When was the fellow going to stop causing problems for people located in functional yet surprisingly soulless offices at the end of labyrinthine arrangements of corridors who were stupid enough to keep answering their ringing telephones? Well, it does sound as though he's got rather a good point, doesn't it? I mean, if he wants to know the guest list, I can't really see why that's a problem. The phone call had been useful in one respect, and that was to remind him to switch the television on. He always made a point of watching Lovewell QC. Not because it was especially entertaining, but because, well, keeping a close eye on Michael had almost become part of his job description these past few years. Now then, who could he call at this time of night who might be stupid enough to pick up their phone and share some of the impending blame around there? It's a surprise, Michael. It's not supposed to be a surprise for me. It's my bloody show. Now, Michael... I know you're upset and all, but please just watch the language, that's all. What? You were at the Respect in the Workplace workshop, weren't you? You have a right to be upset, of course you do. But those around you also have a right not to have to hear about it. Now please, if you don't get down to your audience soon, there'll be mayhem. Twitter's exploded already. There's even speculation you might be dead. Ros, dear. Telephone for you. At this time of night? Who is it? Pardon? I said... Oh, never mind. What do they want? Pardon? Are you sure they want me? I'm trying to watch the telly. It sounded urgent. Really? So she hadn't any notion as to what their caller wanted, or who they were, but she had been able to ascertain they sounded urgent. Well, what did they say? Can I speak to Ros, please? It's urgent. This conversation with Eleanor could very easily go on all night. Answering urgent phone calls out of office hours was not normally something to be undertaken lightly. However, with her job these days being what it was, perhaps she'd be wise to go and find out for herself precisely what her caller required of her. Lovewell QC looked like he'd disappeared of his own title sequence, and frankly, Whoever was on the other end of the line would have to be a better conversationalist than Eleanor. Well, I'm not dead, but this show will be if I don't get the answers I want. There was continuing silence from his director, but his young assistant had a sudden brainwave. Mr Lovewell, sir, the piece of paper you signed for me was effectively the guest list for tonight. Look, sir, look. Big stars. See? Mr Lovewell QC examined the piece of paper and then addressed his director. Hello? Michael, for heaven's sake, please, just please, 
will you please come down to the floor? Who are the big stars I am to interview? That's all I want to know. It's not difficult. Ah, well, they're the big stars, aren't they? They came forth in 2007 on Britain's Ice Skating Chefs Have Got Dancing Talent in the Jungle. You remember? Where are my stars? Well, the thing is this. There are a number of reality shows just kicking off at the moment. Plus, it's summertime, isn't it? So not many new shows need plugging. The West End's doing quite nicely with some long-running successes that are selling themselves. And there aren't many people out there flogging their books at the moment. In short, Michael, big stars is your lot this evening. Although we were ringing round trying to come up with someone else right until the credits rolled. They're still rolling now, Michael. Please. We can sort all this out when the dust settles, but for now, will you please just come down to the floor? Mr Lovewell QC handed the microphone back to his assistant, then folded his arms defiantly. I tell you what, Mr Lovewell, sir, this show is called Lovewell QC, right? It was. I jolly well hope I've seen the last of it now. Yeah, but the thing is, people tune in to see him, don't they? Lovewell QC. That is to say, you, sir. Sitting in their living room in Brentwood and getting steadily more alarmed by the second, Louise originally had no intention of tuning into her husband's show that evening. She never usually watched it, which he was more than aware of. She told him straight, very early on, that she might take in an episode here and there, but that if she committed to any more than that, he would end up taking her for granted as a viewer. He'd mulled it over before reaching a similar conclusion to the one she'd always intended him to. Funny that. It was a sound argument and allowed her considerable freedom, or so she'd thought, when it came to what she could watch while her husband was out of the way. Possibly even including his show, if and when the mood took her. In reality though, in the early days of his chat show career at least, He'd been keen to have her record his appearances each evening and then watch them with her in bed later on. She'd wanted to keep some sort of spontaneity in their bedroom activities, so had been obliged, by default, to avoid the show when it went out live. So much for her freedom. Of course, he seldom had time to watch his shows in bed with her later these days. What with him having to be up at the crack of sparrows to head off for his radio gig? So she actually could have watched his show as it went out. The problem there was, she just didn't find his guests interesting. Which did beg the question of what she was doing there now, sitting in front of her husband's programme. And that could ultimately be attributed to a very strange sequence of recent coincidences. Mikey had told her he was going to have a word with somebody high up and see if he couldn't change the entire format of his show. Rather than the same old faces peddling the same old wares, he was apparently convinced that a far better approach would be to aim for the guests nobody else ever thought to interview. But he'd been saying the same thing off and on for a couple of years now, and nothing about the format of that show had ever changed. However, she always tried to be supportive any time he decided to bounce anything off her, so she'd promised him. If and when he ever got anywhere with his scheme, she'd be more than happy to watch a couple of his shows live every once in a while. That evening, sitting there in her schoolgirl outfit watching the 80s vintage offerings of TV Gold and running through the events of the day thus far in her mind, that series of remarkable coincidences began to unfold before her 
in real time. It was an annoying fact of modern life that all commercial television channels took their commercial breaks at the same time. A viewer jumping around between programmes during an ad break generally had the devil's own job trying to find a show of any kind to watch, let alone one which was in any way interesting. Well, that evening, Louise had tried 13 channels, and on each one she'd encountered some part of a commercial involving her husband. Just like that, one after the other. Right enough, he did seem to be the voice behind a great many products these days, so the chances of that sort of thing happening were possibly not as unlikely as they might have appeared. Indeed, had the commercial's concern been some of his fluffier ones, she may still not yet have sensed anything even slightly peculiar. But given that he'd been talking organ donation, paying off one's funeral in advance so one's relatives aren't landed with the bill for it, and promoting a dating agency for the recently bereaved in South West Essex, she'd begun to get just a slight initial feeling of unease. Trying to shake that off, she'd grabbed the nearest magazine, which had fallen open at a photograph of her absurdly popular husband. She'd seen the picture before and had been impressed then with how handsome and charming he'd looked. Oddly, the expression she saw that evening seemed to be more reproachful in its makeup. The 14th channel she'd tried was one of those music ones, with no commercials at all for her to have to sit through. She'd not heard Message to Michael for a very long time, and had never really noticed its lyrics before. A man called Michael, who'd gone off in search of fame and fortune, but who'd been thwarted in his plans, and who could now only be reached courtesy of a messenger with his own pair of wings? Louise had switched herself over to her husband's chat show without further delay. The sight of the endless title sequences against a background sound of an audience who were nervous and talking amongst themselves had sent the fear of God through her. He'd been taken ill. He must have been. Or worse. Was it urgent, dear? Yes, as a matter of fact, it was. No joy yet, then, with Lovewell QC. That ruddy title sequence was still on some terrible loop. Eleanor had turned the volume up in her absence, so now they had that horribly catchy little theme tune on some terrible loop to contend with as well. I say, Ros, you don't suppose something's happened to him, do you? Eleanor had asked a pertinent and very sensible question. Unfortunately, she then started rambling on about something else entirely, without waiting for Ros to even inhale in anticipation of trying to answer it. She could get stuff then. That's what she could do. Michael remained defiantly stood in his doorway. Although his arms stayed folded, he decided to try to weigh up his options. They plainly reached an impasse of sorts, him and his director. Are you seriously telling me people don't want intelligent debate, probing discussions and brilliantly witty repartee? Well, if you could somehow combine all that with a gunge tank and a dancing dog that we might be in business... We can talk about all that after the show, Michael. Please. This felt good. It also felt dangerous. But by heaven, it felt good. Just out of interest, what did you expect me to do this evening on my live television chat show with no guests? Silence from his director. Brilliant. Oh, you'd have been able to wing it, Mr Lovewell, sir. 
I had complete faith in you to sort it all out. What an absolutely delightful young man that assistant of his was. And of course, Lovewell QC would have been able to come up with something brilliant to cover the asses of whoever had put him in that position to begin with. But that wasn't the point. All right, Michael, tell me what you want and I'll see what I can do. Only please, can you please just come down to the floor? All he'd wanted was a guest list. Just a list of the guests he was supposed to have been interviewing. That was all. No. No, that wasn't all. He wanted shot of this miserable excuse for a gig. Four long years of this toss he'd endured, with it being implied from all quarters for all of that time that his return to the law was just around the corner now. Admittedly, he hadn't expected his entirely reasonable request for some advance notice of the folk desperate enough to appear on this utter drivel to have such dramatic consequences. Still, it had given him a marvellous opportunity to dust off his artful paws and his penetrating gaze for the benefit of this small and exclusive audience. What's your name, young man? The young assistant snapped instantly to attention. Quite right, too. It's Tom, sir. Tom. It was nice to finally encounter a half-decent version of one of those. You're new here. Yes, that's right, sir. This is, well, it was, my first day on your show. How very fortuitous that had been, then. Michael couldn't quite put his finger on exactly how this standoff had started, but young Tom Baker there had somehow played a major part in it. The director hadn't troubled either of them for a while. Perhaps he'd decided it was the perfect week to take up anything from smoking cigarettes to sniffing glue. Michael couldn't very well stand there like that all night. There'd be significant fallout from all this, and he'd prefer not to be still standing there when they all came looking for him. It would appear as though he was waiting for them, which was absolutely not the impression he wanted to give. On the other hand, just walking off and taking his place in front of that audience would make him look ridiculous now. What was needed was perhaps a little divine intervention. Excuse me, sir. Isn't that your phone ringing? Michael cocked his head a little to one side and listened. It was indeed his phone, which was sitting there in front of his makeup mirror. But there wasn't very much he could do to stop it from ringing without giving up the ground he had recently gained. Excuse me, sir. I'll get it for you. Well done, Tom. It was an unfortunate time for the two of them to have met, actually. Michael would have liked to have pulled a few professional strings for this chap. He was a most obliging young man, reverent and respectful, and showing due diligence in making sure eminent persons of immense entertainment importance were afforded all due respect. He liked him. Hello? Mikey! Oh, thank God, you're still alive! For somewhat mysterious reasons, he felt the need to look down at himself before providing a reply to his wife's comment. Yes, of course I am. What are you crying for? Is everything all right? I was so worried about you. I'll kill you for this. The quiet sobbing had been truly heartbreaking, so it was something of a relief when she ditched it in favour of something more in the confrontational line. This might just be the intervention he'd been looking for. Oh dear, 
Had he just inadvertently clicked this private conversation over to speakerphone? Oh dear, oh dear. What are you doing talking to me on this phone anyway? What do you expect a person to do when you call them? He winked at his new friend Tom, as Louise was left to sort out the logistics of that one for herself. Why aren't you doing your show? Well, it's like this. I haven't the faintest idea, really. There was no immediate reply. Of course there wasn't. If he couldn't come up with any answers, then there was certainly no great expectation that she would. Are you all right, Mikey? An interesting question. No, he really wasn't all right. He could charm two dozen pairs of unisex pants off of any 12-member jury that could potentially be chosen, with the possible exceptions of two women he'd previously been related to through marriage, one of whom he was technically still stuck with. And he'd made a success of this rotten little talk show by employing those exact same suave and sophisticated presentational skills. But he was now the monkey to his own organ grinder. I need to be a barrister again. They've got to let me be a barrister again. She didn't pursue his use of the word they there, which was very fortunate. He did so hate having to lie to her. Listen, you're going to be a barrister again. With me, tonight. Remember? Ah, yes. And you're all set to be an exceptionally naughty schoolgirl, aren't you? Just like the old days. I'll have you in the witness box, my girl. And out of it. Did Tom look a little bit shocked at that collection of revelations? All things considered, it was probably better for the Lovewell QC ego than a visage of sheer incredulity. Go and do your show, Mikey, please. I haven't any guests, and I've realised I haven't any interest. Tom's been helping me with that. He winked again at his new friend, who decided, for reasons best known to himself, to give a nice big thumbs up to the fair Louise. Perhaps he thought Michael was the type to have one of those fancy phones where people could actually see each other. Tom? Yes, that's right. Young Tom Baker here. This one's a nice Tom. He's helped me a lot. Do you want to say hello to the missus, Tom? How are you, Mrs Lovewell? Tom, where are the guests? Well, we did have big stars, but I think they've gone down the pub now. That's why they spent most of the afternoon. Michael? Oh, not Mikey anymore, you hear that, Tom? My good lady is very cross with me. Michael, just think about this for a minute. You don't need guests. My good woman, Lovewell QC is supposed to be a chat show, involving people chatting to one another. Chatting to you? So long as Lovewell QC is involved, what's the problem? I said that five minutes ago, Mrs Lovewell. Well done, Tom. I don't suppose you have any experience in front of the camera? No, not really. Don't let that put you off, young man. It's as easy as falling off a log, this television lark. Tom? I'm here, Mrs Lovewell. Get him out in front of the cameras, let him do his bit to the audience, and then interview him. You got that? Now that was a marvellous idea. Oh, I don't know, Mrs Lovewell. What will I ask? Don't you worry about that. Just get him onto the subject of his brilliant legal career and you'll barely have the opportunity to get a word in. Mikey, did you hear all that? 
Michael had only heard the first part of that, in truth. He'd been so busy imagining what it would be like to talk about himself for half an hour that he'd completely missed the sly little dig from his darling wife. Sod it. They would only have about 15 minutes now. In four long years, why had this never occurred to anybody else around there? Michael Lovewell QC was possibly the only genuinely interesting potential show business entity who hadn't already appeared on his own show during that time. Well, him and the big stars, anyway. But with a seven o'clock time slot, big stars hadn't been that easy to come by. Mikey? Uh, he's gone, Mrs Lovewell. I shall have to go too if I'm to catch up with him. Yes, you better had. Good luck, Tom. Thank you very much indeed for your help, Louise. She put down her phone and stared at her television screen. She really wasn't quite sure what she might have unleashed there, but it felt exciting. It also felt dangerous, but by heaven it felt exciting. There had to have been a reason for all those coincidences before, and there was no evidence to suggest that her idea wasn't it. All the same, there was the potential here for things to go very, very badly indeed. Barney, are you quite sure you wouldn't rather have that early night? If I hear this tune one more time, I should go crazy. Well, give it this one, and then I'll take you into the bedroom and... Give her one? Say it, Barney. Say it. Well, whatever you'd like me to do, really. I'm easy. So had Anthea been on that bloody cruise. And being stuck in the company of a cartoon Michael for ten minutes had done nothing but remind her of that. Funnily enough, ten minutes in this case really hadn't seemed to last all that long. Not like those fifteen minutes with Humphrey. You're right, Eleanor. The general consensus on social media does seem to be that he's snuffed it. Poor man. He was such a good Bruce Forsyth impersonator. Eleanor really had no common sense whatever, did she? A title sequence playing over and over and a bunch of people starting a rumour. Where was the proof? Actually, it hadn't been a bunch of people who'd started that rumour. Just the one. That's right, yes. Yes, I'll wait. Michael Lovewell, QC. Good as gold for four years and then wallop. Of course, it would have to happen at this time of night, wouldn't it? Hello? Yes, we certainly do have problems, don't we? Are you watching? Yes, I got word of that little rumour as well. Shame it's not true, really. It would undoubtedly have solved most of our immediate problems. Yes, you're right, of course. We must think of the bigger picture. Even if, right now, that bigger picture closely resembled the scream by Edvard Munch, with the head of department's own agonised face in the foreground, his own two hands covering his ears in a desperate attempt to prevent any news of Lovewell QC's escapades from reaching them. Humphrey Lovewell sighed deeply before dragging himself to his feet and starting the weary walk towards the landing and to the metal stairs that descended from it to the recreation area. 
The problem with taking the blame for the misdemeanours of that latest collection of random odds and sods was that Mr Sudbury decided to retaliate by spitefully taking away his television. He was well used to that punishment by now and, for the most part, it caused him no particular inconvenience, except at rather specific times. For instance, at around about seven o'clock on any weekday evening. Lovewell QC was a programme he always looked forward to, although so far he'd managed to avoid going so far as to actually watch it. To sit through an episode would have been very difficult. For all sorts of reasons, really, but chiefly because Lovewell QC himself was a backstabbing, self-serving, two-faced and barefaced bastard. Bottling up negative feelings of such hatred towards such a spineless yet ruthless git would have been bad news for Humphrey's mental health, so he developed quite a nice little way of dealing with them. Had he ever sat down on his own with the intention of watching a whole half hour of that rubbish, he'd have found himself standing up outside his governor's office a minute and a half later instead, having to explain yet another violent episode. Although at least for once it would only involve him duffing up an inanimate object. So instead, he would take great delight in quite calmly, but very deliberately, changing the channel as soon as the opening theme to his father's crap got cracking. Ronnie Barker's Fletch used to refer to things like that, ostensibly minor though they appeared to be, as little victories. For Lovewell QC's son, it was being able to exert just that little bit of power over perhaps the biggest tosser the world would ever know. Humphrey himself, of course, would probably run him a close second for that dubious honour. Prison was very far from being a barrel of laughs, but it had been an appropriate place to put him. Safely hidden away from people he might otherwise have hurt, and hurt badly. What he was punishing himself for wouldn't even have been classed as real crime, not in any legal sense. But there had been victims. Or rather, there would be victims, if he ever found his way out of there. All things considered then, it was best that everyone concerned forgot all about him and effectively threw away the key. Except for Michael. The only man with a guilt-edged invitation to visit him any time he wanted, and yet also the one man nailed on to have completely forgotten all about him, before anyone else had even begun to. That was as far as Humphrey's thought process had got to, by about ten minutes past seven on that particular Wednesday evening. And the reason behind such an extensive and unwelcome period of self-reflection? Well, that had become more obvious as the introspection continued. It was the theme tune to Lovewell QC, playing over and over and over again. In a parallel universe, and with a less tired and emotional governor, he would have already put his own television out of its misery by that point. Was it possible he had fallen into an alternate reality, the only escape from which would be to go downstairs and, very deliberately, change the channel on the communal telly? Or to just kick its screen in, whichever choice seemed the most sensible by the time he got down there. With that theme tune being as irritating as it undoubtedly was, the violent option did look to have the edge on its alternative as Humphrey reached the bottom of those stairs. But by the time he'd reached the scene of any further crimes, it emerged that the theme tune had been on its last hurrah anyway. For a brief moment, he panicked. 
He was trapped between a sudden urgent need to know why a large crowd of his neighbours were now cheering loudly and an equally sudden yet probably more urgent need to go back to the safety of his cell and close the door behind him. If he didn't see that scheming bastard, some scientific circles allowed for the possibility that the great man didn't exist. And if Michael didn't exist, it made it an awful lot easier for Humphrey to understand why he couldn't just pop in to see him whenever he felt like it. Having carried him as far as the recreation area, his feet apparently had the casting vote as to what would be his destiny. They remained firmly planted to the floor, leaving him with a nice clear view of that evening's somewhat belated Lovewell QC. That is, he would have had a nice clear view had his eyes not refused to open. They were obviously unhappy with the way the vote had gone and were doing their best to stall for time in hopes of a second referendum on the matter. Alas, his ears decided to invoke the will of the very small majority and reported for duty as normal. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a quarter past seven, so please allow me to apologise most humbly for my tardiness. I hope you will find it within your hearts to forgive me. Humphrey counted down to the big moment. This would be the first time he'd set eyes on Michael since the day of that trial. Apart from that stupid little cartoon version of him, who seldom got further than a quick spin beyond the door of the cartoon court before he was removed from Humphrey's existence by the power of remote infrared. He sounded just as pompous as ever, in words anyway. There was something not immediately recognisable when it came to the warm and friendly tone, though. But do you, my audience here, and wherever you happen to be watching me, the thing is, in my defence... I was defending you, each and every one of you, from any accusation you would ever have been desperate enough to willingly sit through the utter cack they wanted me to serve to you this night. Louise was rather lamenting the fact she had no chocolate in the house, given how entertaining her husband's little stint in the spotlight looked like it was shaping up to be. The Bruce Forsyth pose, as soon as the audience had cheered the roof off the place, had been subtle and very much blink and you missed it but she clocked it all right. It was tantalising to think about what he might say, especially about her. The skirt on that schoolgirl outfit had just magically become another two inches shorter. Sitting in his office at the end of a labyrinthine arrangement of corridors was a man who had already been here once before. He'd taken his eye off him again. Would he never bloody learn? Humphrey forced himself to look at the face of his perpetual familial nemesis. The last time he clapped eyes on that boat, it was as both it and its owner were being loaded into their own individual compartment of the van which was meant to be taking them all to prison. How was it possible that, in the space of four years, the old sod had seemingly grown at least ten years younger? He allowed himself a faint smile at the thought of the old fool's first foray into the second flush of youth. That was just after he'd taken up with the lovely Louise and when the pair of them were in the celebrity magazines. He'd gone for something vivid and tangerine-tinted in the hair dye department and something leather and ludicrous in the trousers. Humphrey had found it all highly amusing at a time when, as he could vividly recollect, there'd not been much humour in his day-to-day -day existence.
Despite a much more subtle makeup job having been performed on the old swine this time, Humphrey recognised the features from his own inherited reflection, the massive hooter in particular. He decided to stick with the white hair, that was a definite improvement. The length of it was embarrassing though. He was still vain in the matter of his barnet then. He had a strange little movement going on during his piece to camera there. What was that? Who did he think he was then? Terry Wogan? As the sound of the loud cheering had already indicated, Lovewell QC was enjoying a mystifyingly enthusiastic audience, both in the studio and in Humphrey's otherwise cloistered world. Most of these would have been sitting there since the television was first switched on, though, in fairness. And they'd still be in the exact same spot when it was switched off at 7.30 for the night. But even they appeared to be eagerly anticipating something of a televisual event in the company of... Well, if you look closely, you look to be incorporating a whole host of mannerisms covering the wide spectrum of a whole host of hosts. Briefly, Humphrey wished he could have enjoyed at least a pint and a half of whatever his viewing companions were on. Then he reminded himself what a total arsewipe Michael Lovewell QC was, and made eye contact with someone sitting in the front row, who instantly and quite apologetically gave up their seat for him. He'd immediately recognised he was now in the company of a real man, who would not hesitate to thump him if he didn't shift himself. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Tom. Tom was the one who first drew my attention to your case. Now... There should have been more of a prosecution, really, going after the ones who thought they could get you to watch the rubbish they'd planned for you in the first place. But the fact is, Tom, it's been a golden rule of mine, throughout a somewhat stellar legal career, that I never prosecute. No, he couldn't defend all that well, either. Yes, all right. Humphrey had pleaded guilty and made a complete tit of himself in court. But so had Michael when it came to that. Look at the pair of them, though, look! I'm sorry, Tom. Did you ask me a question there about my greatest legal achievements? His simpering minion hadn't said a word there. He had not uttered a sound. And yet... Yes, Mr Lovewell, sir. Please tell me about them. Oh, I wouldn't want to bore everyone with all that. Ha! Huh. That didn't sound very like him either. Well, I would love to hear about them. And I know everyone else would. Wouldn't you? No, not really. The simpering minion wasn't really asking Humphrey, though, was he? And he'd have been drowned out by the cheers of those around him in any case. Oh, all right, then. On one condition, you call me Mike. The simpering minion appeared to be blushing. Not a very good make-up job on him, then. I couldn't possibly do that. Tom, always remember... I'm not some remote establishment figure. I'm an ordinary man. Oh, Christ. Yes, an ordinary man, who desired nothing more than just an ordinary chance to live exactly as he liked and do precisely what he wanted, and screw everybody else. This couldn't really be happening, could it? The one time, the one and only time he'd watched this bloody show, and it looked like being entirely devoted to his sworn nemesis, with someone hanging on the git's every word thrown in for free. You couldn't have made this up. Well, he wasn't sitting there watching any more of it. Unless, was there any possibility whatsoever that Mike 
would make mention of old Humphrey there in his ramblings? Because if there was any possibility of anything momentous like that happening, he'd tell this lot to shut up while whacking the volume right up. Then, once Mike had signed off by promising to belatedly come and get him off, Humphrey could hold off the adoring crowds as they surrounded him, desperately wanted to hear some of the multitude of heartwarming father and son stories a man who would mention his son like that must have starred in. Except that he was rabbiting away about his legal successes, wasn't he? Even speaking quickly and completely talking over his simpering minion as he was, he still wouldn't be able to fit all those in, let alone any stories which would imply he'd been less than triumphant. Right, he definitely wasn't sitting there watching any more of this crap then. Don't turn it over, don't turn it off! He turned towards the middle-aged man who'd made that request. Humphrey couldn't recall ever having seen him before, and he never forgot a face, not in there. He didn't like seeing new faces, which was one of the reasons why he kept finding himself being moved back to this prison, rather than getting on with life in a lower category jail. At least the neighbourhood around there tended to be reasonably settled and long-serving. The leader of this gang of television aficionados, without so much as a collectively critical glass eye between them, leapt up and physically positioned himself between the two Lovewells. Everyone else fell silent. Although that was probably because they all had half an ear out for their own names being mentioned amongst the great man's list of legal successes. Their luck had evidently run out once he'd moved on to richer pastures new, much the same way Humphreys had. Still, that wasn't completely keeping him from having a whole ear listening out for such a thing as well. This fellow must have been at least six foot four and was built like a tank. Humphrey probably weighed more than him, but it was pure flab. As was usually the case when he compared himself to other real men, he found himself coming up several inches short in the size department as well. This didn't look good at all. On the other hand, I'm sure you know best. And with that, he sat right back down. This definitely didn't look good at all. Terminating Lovewell QC would have to wait for a while. Humphrey needed a nice, quiet little conversation with this gentleman first. All right, what are you playing at? I don't follow you, mate. You must be at least six foot four and you're built like a tank. You could have flattened me there, but you just backed down. What occurs then? It was most irritating to not get the bloke's full attention. He seemed unable to tear his eyes away from the great man, who was currently waffling on about some libel trial he'd knocked right out of the park in 1986. That was getting into the sort of time frame where Humphrey should have been getting a mention or two, although, actually, even he couldn't think of a single solitary reason why. Look at him. He's a gentleman, he is. The assembled little crowd, with the obvious exception of Humphrey, were quite vociferous and agreeing with him. To reassure himself that he wasn't simply playing the part of doubting Thomas that evening, he turned back to get another look at the great man. It was a dramatic scene, some sort of closing speech, if Humphrey had to hazard a guess, or, in other words, a chance for Michael to drone on without fear of interruption. The spotlight was embarrassing. It wasn't even as though it added any drama. He'd already told everyone and his wife how he'd bun the bloody thing that day. Oh, 
And now he was telling them all about his wife, years before she became his wife, when he'd taken her with him to the Old Bailey for the day. When and how had that happened? Humphrey should have had, Humphrey should have had first refusal on that sort of gig. And refuse it he would have done, make no mistake about that. He may have received little to none of his father's attention, even in those days, but at least it was on his terms and not the great man's. Even now he made it very clear to Louise, via a terribly handy messenger, that only a grovelling, snivelling and uncharacteristically convincing appeal from the two-faced backstabber she'd hitched her matrimonial wagon to would get him back in communication with the outside world. Under those circumstances, it seemed unlikely anyone on the outside would ever be hearing from Humphrey Lovewell again. Apart from hearing from him with the message they wouldn't be hearing from him. Apart from that. And that was a message which seemed to have got no farther than Louise herself. If it had even made it that far. Because his father couldn't possibly have passed up the opportunity to get down on his knees right there, in front of millions of viewers, and beg his egregiously wronged son to run him up a welcome mat the next time he found himself toiling in the prison workshop. Unless he truly didn't give a stuff, whether or not he ever laid eyes on him again. He really did love Louise, though, didn't he? That was unfortunate. It meant the great man had at least one redeeming feature. Trust him to be awkward like that, the bastard. What a poorly chosen day for Humphrey to finally establish contact with her, then. he kept his powder dry for so long, only to watch it turn into a damp squib in less than half a day. Nice going, Lovewell. It almost certainly meant that, in the grand scheme of things now, his time inside had actually achieved bog all. Uh, what were all these people applauding for? That Mr Lovewell, he's a gentleman, is Mr Lovewell. Absolutely, definitely a gentleman. That seemed to be the general opinion of the assembled viewing public. The opinion of everyone then, except Humphrey. As the lone dissenter, he was determined to be heard. What about the sentence he got for contempt, eh? What about that? He was too good to come and serve that with the likes of us, wasn't he? Oh, he thought he was. So he slithered out of it, somehow. That doesn't sound like much of a gentleman to me. You can't expect someone like Mr Lovewell to spend time in here with the likes of us. He's a gentleman. He's seen me all right in the past. Typical. Humphrey had spent years, literally decades, trying to get his father to give him the attention he so craved, only to finally have it once he followed the likes of these gentlemen down the path of crime. But while Lovewell QC had been conscientious to the last as far as they were concerned, he'd managed, once and for all, to wash his hands completely of him. Humphrey should have been holding court with this bunch, sharing tales of precisely why, yes, his father was a gentleman, and yes, his father was the best dad he could ever have wished for. Instead, he'd even cheated him out of that. You're off your bloody rockers, the lot of you. He's a treacherous turncoat, that's what he is. With a ridiculously young wife. No, that would simply add to the allure of the arsehole. You should be a lot more respectful of Mr Lovewell QC. He's a gentleman. 
at least six foot four, built like a tank, more than likely a fully paid up member of Mal's Angels, and as suspicious a sort of character as Humphrey had seen around those parts for quite a while now. No, not a gentleman, sir. He's a two-faced liar. And he's absolutely crap at impersonations. No, all right. Sod's law meant he was just as good at those now as he had been when Humphrey had first provided the perfect vehicle to showcase his talents. While everyone else with any talent on that cruise was either doubled up or perched over the nearest available lavatory, suffering from the effects of the norovirus. That felt like a hundred years ago. You're not to talk about Mr Lovewell that way. Oh, get stuffed. The conversation between them had reached lower and lower volumes with each exchange. With the rest of the viewers positively riveted to the great man's variation on the theme of Horace Rumpole, the two men had reached the level of stage whispers. You will feel my belt for that. A rush of pure adrenaline flew through Humphrey. You what? You heard me. The great man smiled at him through the television screen. I heard my father. Don't tell me. You're another old client of his who was finally and justifiably sent down once he'd abandoned you for this bloody crap. That's right. He saw me all right on a number of occasions. Yeah, that all figured. So what? He got word to you, somehow, and asked you to look after me. That's about the size of it. Wasn't that just marvellous? He couldn't be bothered to even write to Humphrey. Yet he'd engineered it so he could write to someone else he could be bothered with in order to find out how his own son was doing. Humphrey, who had never claimed to be any kind of intellectual, was knocked for a good six and a half by the speed of his deductive powers on that score. How much are you getting? Oh, nothing financial. I couldn't charge Mr Lovewell QC. I owe him. See, even with this three-stretch for GBH, over the years, I'm still a solid 15 ahead of the deal. The great man would probably have been rather proud of that. This Man Mountain's latest victim would no doubt be significantly less impressed, though. Bit of a hard man, are you? You could say that, although not many juries ever did. He laughed. Unfortunately for all concerned... From where Humphrey was sitting, it created a stereo effect when combined with the laughter coming out of that television. He wasn't quite seeing red, not yet, but it was coming. And when it did come, this fellow would be seeing more stars than a year's worth of episodes of this poxy talk show. You're going to give me a good hiding then, are you? It was a question Humphrey always heard himself asking. Whenever one of these paid renter heavies pitched up, no, of course not. That was the stock answer we always got. But supposing I want you to give me a good hiding, what then? Can I lay all my cards on the table, H? It did seem to be the only way to find out if at least one of them was playing with a full deck. It was supposed to be a clever little code, you know. That's all. So you'd know your father had sent me. Yeah, I get that. But this is the perfect opportunity for me, isn't it? Your cell or mine? Just say when. The man opened his eyes, very, 
very widely indeed. That was the expression Humphrey had come to expect once these conversations tried to concentrate on a few specifics. You could really go to town on me. I wouldn't cry, I promise you. A show of emotion like that would just be embarrassing for everybody, wouldn't it? I want him to know that I'm coping in here like a man. You'll be able to tell him straight. No, 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 I'm not getting involved with that. This was absolutely typical. Look, all I want is a bare-ass belt spanking I can take like a man. Then you can report that back to this bloody asshole. Is that really too much to bloody ask? Yes, all right, he'd shouted that. And yes, he was aware that everyone, including for some surreal reason the aforementioned arsehole and that simpering minion, were all now staring at him. The television two had been waiting for a question from someone in their studio audience, so at least that strange little spell was broken almost immediately. On the subject of being a man, he did give me some very nice items of women's wear for you. He wasn't sure of his size, but I'm sure he'd be happy to exchange the items if I was to bell him. I've got them in my cell. You can come and try them on if you like, after this is finished. This was sort of back to the script. Hang about. So you're happy for people to know I'm in your cell with you, trying on women's gear. But you won't give me a damn good hiding so I can prove I'm a man. Talk about double standards. Don't take this the wrong way, Humphrey, mate. But Mr Lovewell did sort of convey the message to me that you were the sort of man who coped best with what life had to chuck at you from within the comforting embrace of a tight-fitting pair of ladies' knickers. Huh. That just showed how completely out of touch the great man was then, didn't it? Modern-day Humphrey was a full-on, Steve McQueen-style, testosterone-soaked man with no ifs, buts or maybes. His interest in women's wear which had started way back when Mrs Thatcher was still responsible for choosing Number 10's wallpaper, had been well and truly knocked on the head these past four years. For Christ's sake, what was the point of it in here? It had started out in 1985 as a fairly unconventional weapon in the battle to get his father's attention. Since he'd been completely unsuccessful in attracting that in any positive sense, even a taste of the great man's belt from time to time in response to it had been most welcome. But then over the years, it had evolved into something of a comfort to him, a way of getting in contact with his feminine side. Quite coincidentally, it had also been a handy way to get close to all sorts of women. Not least because there were very few women he couldn't make feel better about themselves, simply by putting himself next to them as a very pale comparison indeed. Whatever his father was playing at with his 2019 women's wear offerings, Humphrey wanted nothing to do with it. He'd found other, more conventional ways of dealing with his frustrations, as this fellow was well on the way to finding out. Besides, owing to the fact that practically everyone else and his wife and or husband in that nick seemed to have adopted female garb for the season, it had significantly lost its appeal just lately. Perhaps it too had fallen foul of a shoddy barrister with no concern whatsoever for the people he priced up packaged carefully, and then sold down the nearest river. You can tell him from me he can stick his women's wear. He just caught himself in time, thankfully not yet quite in the act of making inquiries as to the specific nature of the garments. Yes, 
That was very much part of the usual script too. For what it's worth, I think you're an ungrateful little sod. If Mr Lovehold bought me a collection of good quality lingerie, I'd at least want to try it on to see if it fitted. And even if it didn't, at least it would show that he cared. That was an interesting take on things this bloke had, if not perhaps also a little disturbing. So it was lingerie the great man had sent in, was it? The only possible reason for doing so would be to cast significant doubt upon Humphrey's credentials as a real man. Which meant his son was going to have to come up with an overwhelmingly masculine course of action so his father could get the message once and for all. As for the notion that Michael cared about Humphrey in any way, that appeared to fit neither the available evidence nor the narrative Humphrey had come up with to explain his father's utter neglect. So the great man didn't care. It really was that simple. He didn't care about Humphrey, and he couldn't really have cared very much about this bloke either. So, ladies and gentlemen, we reach the end of our journey together this evening, and quite possibly for longer. Rest assured, however, we shall meet again. Somewhere, sometime, somehow. That could have been construed as either a message of hope or a thinly disguised threat. From the appreciative mumblings of Humphrey's viewing companions, though, it turned out to be pretty much word for word the way he always signed off at the end of his show. The only difference this time being the acknowledgement of the likelihood of his sacking. That was interesting in itself, then. Every night, for as far back as this lot could remember, he had mentioned the name of Humphrey's life coaching business back in Brentwood. Every night! Every night he'd gone to all that trouble. Why? I told you he cared, didn't I? Humphrey abandoned his thoughts and watched, completely helpless, as his father accepted the grateful cheers of an audience full of strangers and then, having shaken the hand of his simpering minion, embraced him most warmly. Humphrey hadn't been keeping count of the straws he'd grasped at since he'd first taken his place in the front row of that ragtag congregation. But he did know instinctively he'd just seen the last of them. He doesn't care very much for you, does he? How do you mean? Well, I reckon we're well into double figures now with randoms like you who've just turned up in here to do his dirty work for him. He told you all about them, did he? No. No, of course he hadn't. Humphrey took a very deep breath. You've got three years in here, is that right? Oh, I won't serve the full three stretch. I'm going to be on my best behaviour, see? Was that a fact? That's very interesting, because my little five stretch is now stretching right round the bleeding cell block, thanks to people like you. Humphrey jumped to his feet, just as his father's credits rolled to a halt. The people sat nearby who had seen this sort of thing happen before could only watch and wait. I'm just here to watch your back, that's all. I can start now, actually, by letting this lot know that you are now my personal property. That will keep people away from you, and it will give you a good excuse to spend a bit of time in some of that women's wear. God, that did sound appealing. But there was simply no possibility it could ever happen. 
Humphrey was a man, as this bloke was just about to find out. Tell you what, why don't you put the word out that you are my personal property? That would achieve the same end, surely? While also focusing unwelcome attention away from Humphrey's end. Have a word? I'm not saying that. Why not? Because people might believe it and I'd have to hit them. I just want to keep my nose clean. But you see, I'm sorry, I didn't even catch your name. It's Bob. Well, Bob, are you hard? He didn't look altogether sure. Perhaps he was waiting for confirmation from an on-the-scene reporter. Because I'm hard, Bob. People like you make me hard, Bob. And so the point is, if I hit you and you don't hit me back, that makes me harder than you. What do you reckon?